Well, we are in Acts chapter 11, so if you have a Bible with you, please turn there. And, and I realize some of you probably joined us this summer, and we were in a couple different mini-series. We'd actually paused Acts for a bit, so you didn't have a clue we were in Acts. Um, and then others, you've been with us the whole time. Um, but maybe, well, it has, it's been a while, so I want to give you a refresher. So um, the Bible Project, they have multiple videos on Acts. They have a good one that, that uh, looks at chapters 1 through 7. So I want to show that to us, and then I'll catch us up uh, up to uh, 11 where we will be today. So let's watch this video together. life, death, and resurrection was written by a man named Luke. We know it as the Gospel of Luke, but Luke continued the story in a second volume called the Book of Acts, and it's all about what Jesus continued to do after his resurrection. Acts begins with the disciples who are hanging out with <laughs> Jesus, who's just come back to life, which is mind-blowing to imagine. And then for weeks, the risen Jesus kept teaching them about his upside-down kingdom, the new creation that he launched through his death and resurrection. This is exciting stuff, and the disciples are ready to go tell the world. But then Jesus tells them to wait and to stay in Jerusalem until they receive a new kind of power so they can be faithful witnesses to Jesus and his kingdom. Then he says that their mission is going to begin in Jerusalem, then move out to Judea and Samaria, and then from there out into the nations. It's like a road map for the whole book of Acts. Then the disciples saw Jesus enthroned as king of all creation. So the disciples wait, wondering when this power is going to come. And then comes the time of Pentecost. So this is an ancient Israelite festival it's during the early summer, and thousands and thousands of Jewish pilgrims would come back to Jerusalem from all over the world, all these different languages and cultures colliding in the city. And the disciples are together in a house, which is suddenly filled with rushing wind along with fire. Fire splinters off into tongues of fire hovering over people's heads. What's this all about? Yeah, so Luke is tapping into a repeated Old Testament theme. When God's presence showed up similarly at Mount Sinai, he made a covenant with Israel and gave them the Ten Commandments. Then later, when God's glory came in a pillar of fire, it filled the tabernacle when he came to live among them. That was just one pillar of fire, not many. Exactly. Luke's making an important point here. This is God's personal temple presence, God's spirit that was foretold by Israel's prophets. And now it's come to take up residence in the new temple of Jesus' body, that is, his people. They've become little mobile temples where God now dwells. And they start to tell stories about Jesus, but they're speaking in languages that they didn't know before, yet all the visitors can understand them. What's this all about? Well, Peter gets up to explain that this is the fulfillment of Israel's hopes based on the scriptures. God's plan was always to use the unified family of Abraham to bring peace and justice to the world. But the tribes of Israel had been scattered because of the exile. Now here at Pentecost, representatives from all of the tribes come back together and they're introduced to their Messiah, the crucified and risen Jesus, so they can now become the restored people of Israel. And thousands of them start following the way of Jesus. Which brings us to Luke's tale of two temples. So you've got the temple that Herod built in Jerusalem, where Jesus' disciples worship like the rest of the Israelites. But now there's also Jesus' temple, which consists of people. This temple's meeting together in homes all over Jerusalem, and they were approaching life in a radical new way. Right, think about it. Many of these pilgrims aren't even from Jerusalem, so 
they formed these new families and they're all depending on each other. Yeah, people would sell their stuff, provide for the poor among them. They ate their meals together. They said their daily prayers together. They were learning from the apostles what it meant to live as if Jesus is the true king of the world. And it must have been exhilarating. But it wasn't all fun and games. Being God's temple is serious business, just like in the Old Testament. So you might know about that strange story in the book of Leviticus about two priests who disrespect God in the temple and then suddenly die. Well, Luke includes here a similar story of two disciples who dishonor God's spirit in this new temple and they suffer a similar fate. So there's corruption in the community, but the bigger problem is coming from the outside. Yeah, from the other temple. Its leaders are threatened by this new messianic movement, and so they arrest the apostles, they try to stop them. And this brings us to the final story in the Jerusalem section of Acts. We're introduced to a new disciple, Stephen. Oh yeah, Stephen, he's on fire. He steps up as a leader among the disciples to serve the poor, and he would go to the temple courts to teach people about the way of Jesus. So the temple leaders arrest Stephen, and they find false witnesses to accuse him of dishonoring Moses and of being a terrorist who's threatening the temple. In response, Stephen gives this powerful speech about how predictable this whole situation was. Yeah, he retells the whole Old Testament story, highlighting characters like Joseph, Moses, and the prophets, people who are consistently rejected and persecuted by their own people. Israel's been resisting God's representatives for centuries, and so their rejection of Jesus and now of his followers is a rejection of God himself. They get angry, and they start to execute him by picking up rocks and smashing him to death. And as he's dying, he commits himself to the way of Jesus, to suffer because of the sins of others. He even cries out, Lord, don't hold the sin against them. This is basically what Jesus said at his death. Exactly. Stephen becomes the first martyr of the Jesus movement. Many more to come. But this persecution contains seeds of hope which is why Luke introduces us to a new character here, a religious leader named Saul. He stands over Stephen's dead body and even approves of the whole thing. Wait, Saul, you mean the man who becomes the apostle Paul? Yes, Luke is showing how even this tragic murder can't stop Jesus's kingdom. And so many persecuted disciples scatter out of Jerusalem. And just as Jesus said, they head into Judea and Samaria. Now, the story of what happens there that's what the next section of Acts is all about. And, and so in 8, Saul, who was just introduced there, he ravages the church. And, and as they said, the, the disciples are scattered. And what Luke does here in these following chapters is he, he lays out a, a sequence of events, accounts, uh, showing that the mission of, of bringing the, the gospel to the Gentiles is, is happening. Um, Gentiles just means non-Jewish people, right? So Jewish people and, and non-Jewish people, they call Gentiles. Uh, and God's plan uh, to save people from sin and death was always to include uh, all people, uh, no matter where they are in the world, who would respond to uh, Christ, put their faith in him. So we see, we see Philip. He goes to the Samaritans. And, and maybe you remember uh, Philip with the Ethiopian in the chariot. And, and this Ethiopian comes to know Christ and certainly goes uh, back to his people. Uh, and then even Saul, the ravager of the church, is confronted by Jesus and, and repents. And then he goes and he preaches. Uh, at the end of chapter 9 uh, and into 10, uh, Peter, he goes to these, uh, these coastal plain cities and he's, he's uh, sharing the gospel and, and he has a vision uh, one, one day. And, and in that vision, God reveals it to him that, 
that the gospel is for everyone, right? That, that there's no one outside of the reach of the gospel, that all can respond uh, in faith to Jesus, no matter where they're from, no matter what their ethnicity is, uh, no, matter, no, no matter what they've done, they can come to know Christ as their, their Savior. They can be reconciled with God. And, and then God miraculously, after he has that vision, uh, sets up an opportunity for him to go and, and share with all these Gentiles. And they come to know Christ, right? And, and, and word gets back to the church that, that the Gentiles are receiving the Lord as well. The Holy Spirit comes on them. If you were to open up to Acts chapter 1 and look at the title in your Bible, it probably says uh, the Acts of the Apostles. That's what mine says. Um, but let's look at how 1-1 starts. It says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Right? Luke's, Luke's telling us here right at the beginning of this book that he's going to, he's going to tell the story of what Jesus continued to do uh, right? by the power of the Spirit through his followers. Um, the, the apostles certainly were faithful participants in God's mission. Um, but, but this is how the book starts. Peter wants us, or uh, uh, Luke wants us to know that, that Jesus' work is continuing. Um, and even though Jesus ascends in the first chapter, it, it is by a spirit through his church that he moves. In, in Acts 1.8, uh, it's kind of a, a table of contents or a, uh, maybe a, a roadmap for how the gospel will move forward. It says, uh, Jesus, before he ascended, said, but you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So, so the gospel is moving forward to all peoples. So let's jump into Acts chapter 11, verses 19 and 20. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch speaking the word to no one except the Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. So this intense persecution, like was mentioned in the video of Stephen, and then what followed Stephen's death, it scattered the early church. And on the surface, it seems like this has to be a blow to the, the early church, to these early believers. But what becomes quite clear in Acts is that God will not be stopped. Right? The gospel will not be slowed down by the scattering of the church or, or by anything else. And in fact, the scattering of the church really had the opposite effect. I imagine like a, a fire that's burning and, and somehow it being scooped up and thrown into the air. And, and all, those, all those embers and, and the, the charcoal that, that's on fire is scattered. And what it does in the new places that it lands is it, it doesn't go out. It starts new little gospel fires. So they, they burn in their new surroundings. And what a good reminder for us. I mean, really, this is just what Kevin said. That God isn't thrown by difficulty. Right? Like we're, we're so easily knocked off kilter, right? We're, we're so easily thrown by hard circumstances, but our God is not. Right? I think about uh, COVID and, and the church, um, and, and that was a, a hard time. And every church I've talked to, every church I've read about um, lost a lot of people. You know, that were a part of their church, maybe for a, a long, long time. And, and some of those people have, have not gone back to church. And, and that is a tragedy. I mean, that, that, is, a, that is a problem. Uh, we need to pray. If you have friends that, that you know they still haven't gotten back to our church, man, be praying for how, how you can talk with them about the, that and encourage them in that. But a good number of people, they, they left the church they're a part of, like ours, and they've gone to uh, another church uh, that they weren't a part of before. 
And I, I trust God's shuffling of his people. Uh, I'm sure that many people left churches for totally God-glorifying, good, good reasons. And, and, and some others, maybe there's some mixed reasons in there that, that weren't so good. But I still, I, I trust that God is at work. God will move his people. He, he will shape his church. He'll build his church how he wants to. And I know many of you in the last couple of years are new to Harvest, whether you moved here from another state or, or moved here from another church. And, and maybe some of you have uh, some wounds from that last church that you are in that, that are still healing up. But, but I want to encourage you. Right? I don't want you to think for a moment that God isn't at work. Um, even in those painful circumstances, God is at work. He, he has gospel kingdom building work for you to be a part of. So the scattering of the early church, it did not slow down the gospel. If anything, I think it actually accelerated it. These dispersed believers in Acts, they just talked about Christ. Right? Wherever they went, they were, they were a faithful witness. Where, everywhere they went, they, they talked about Christ. So they talked about Christ in, in their workplace. They talked about Christ in the market. They talked about Christ as they're, I don't know, playing with their kids or whatever they were doing, they talked about Christ. Right? They talked about his love. They talked about salvation. They, they, they spoke about being able to, to know Yahweh. So Jewish people were hearing about Jesus. Gentiles were hearing about Jesus. God was, God was moving his people on this mission that he had given them. Like, like Acts 1.8 said, Jerusalem and Judea, right? Their, their home turf. And then the persecution comes in 7 and 8. And we, and we see that the gospel has moved to new areas. It's proclaimed to new people. Um, they just spoke about Jesus. Where, where they lived, they were faithful to share the good news. And not because, not because of some obligation, like Jesus is this product that they had to convince others to buy. But no, they, they talked about Jesus because they were convinced that Jesus loved them, that Jesus had saved them. That's what we talk about. We talk about what we're into. We talk about what we like. If you, if you get a new job, and you love that, that new company that you're working for, right? You, you love the perks of that company. You love the, the culture of that company. You're going you're gonna to talk about it until, until the honeymoon wears off. All right? If you, I don't know, if you love crocheting, <laughs> you're going to talk about crocheting. I can't even pretend to talk about crocheting, so I won't give you an example there, but needles and yarn, I think. Um, if you have kids or, or grandkids, you're going to talk about them. Right? If your kid's playing a sport, you're going to talk about what happened yesterday at his game or her game. Right? If you're into antiquing or, I don't know, quilting, sports, whatever it is, we, we talk about what we, what we are into, what we love. So what about Jesus? Right? Does, does Jesus just come out of our, our mouth? Because we just, man, we just love him. We're just blown away that, that he would love us, that he'd come and, and give his life for us so that we could know him. And he didn't just like, save us from sin, but he, he makes us his own. He makes us part of his family. Or, or we stopped really talking much about Jesus. Right? Does Jesus become old hat to us? Are we just so familiar with the grace of God that we've kind of stopped being amazed by it? Or, or am I just interested in what's on my phone? Right, the latest news story that I'm reading or, or, or the latest political thing that, that I hope is good or bad or, or am I into Christ? Luke tells us specifically that, that these believers, they're, they're in Antioch and they're spreading the gospel. 
Uh, Antioch's a big city. I think it's the third largest city at the time. And it's not exactly the city that, that, that one would think like, oh yeah, that's going to be ripe for gospel response. Antioch was, uh, was secular, as pagan as you could get. Uh, I heard someone say, think of it like, like Vegas of the ancient world. Um, although the more I've read about Antioch, I'm not so sure that's fair to Vegas. But people were responding to the gospel, right? And, and the church in Jerusalem, way back in Jerusalem, heard about this response to the gospel in Antioch. So verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The, uh, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Right? So many people were turning to Christ in this, in this horrible city, this sin-filled city that word gets back to Jerusalem. And it was decided that Barnabas should go to Antioch. Well, why Barnabas? Verse 24 is going to tell us a little bit more about Barnabas, but let's think back to what we know of Barnabas from chapter 9. Uh, like I said earlier, Saul, the, the great persecutor of the church, uh, interacts with Christ. He's confronted by Christ. He repents. He turns to Christ. But the problem is the believers knew his reputation. They knew what he had just been doing, and they're, they're scared. Maybe they did think, yes, he's really Christian, but there's no way I'm getting near him. Or, or maybe they doubted the, the genuineness. Maybe they thought he was trying to trick them. So they're so distrustful of him that, that Saul tries to go and, and connect with the disciples, and they won't let him. Right? They, they, they stiff arm him. And then here comes Barnabas, and he takes Saul. He personally takes Saul to the apostles, and Barnabas vouches for what God had done in Saul's life, right? That, that Saul really did love Jesus. Barnabas was an advocate for Saul, right? And I just, I wonder what would have happened, or actually what would not have happened if Barnabas didn't, uh, didn't come and walk beside Saul. So Barnabas has a track record of bringing outsiders or those in the margins into fellowship, right? They, the, the church didn't choose one of the apostles to send. They chose Barnabas to go to these new believers. And it, it makes sense based on what we know of Barnabas that they would do this. But just because it makes sense to everyone else, I realize it didn't mean that Barnabas had to say yes, right? He could have said, I like Jerusalem, Right? Like I've been working hard and ministering. I feel like I feel like ministry is really taking off for me. Or, or man, I've, I've been here a long time. I've got I've got relationships. I'm not just ready to pick up and move. So we can't miss the willingness that that Barnabas has to go. And and there's no evidence that he ever came to live in Jerusalem again. But God, God called Barnabas, and Barnabas said, "Yeah, I'll go." So I look at Barnabas, and I have to ask myself, man, am I willing? to go wherever God calls me, right? Are, are we willing to be sent where God calls? Are, are we willing to go where, where God asks us to go? All Christians, right? This isn't just a, a missionary thing. This isn't just a pastor thing. All Christians are, we are sent ones, right? And, and there's some that will be called to go preach the gospel in places that have literally never heard the gospel. Uh, but there are others that, that will be called to places much closer by. So maybe you're a student, you're gonna be sent, you're gonna be called to Washougal High School or Camas High School or, or Sky Ridge or Liberty or, or Jump to Guard or Canyon Creek. Those are all the schools I can remember right now. Um, or maybe God will send you to, to a, a corporate office 
right? And you're going to be in a cubicle working with some people that, that need to hear about Jesus. Or, or he's going to send you to be a nanny in, in a house uh, with, with, you know, a, a couple's kids. And, and they don't know Jesus, the gospel presence. There's been no gospel light in that household before. Or maybe, maybe God calls you to, you, uh, to go across the street, right? Not very far at all, but believers are sent ones. And Barnabas was the person for this job. The, the Jerusalem church sent him to the believers in Antioch. Verse 23, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. There's a lot to notice there. But first thing that we read is that he saw the grace of God and he was happy about it. He was delighted in what he saw. Now Barnabas was a seasoned veteran of Christian ministry at this point. And while I don't know that his gifting was necessarily in, in evaluating uh, ministry or, or church strategies, he'd been around the block enough times to see uh, things that were healthy in a church and, and things that weren't so healthy. And, and that matters, right? As a church, uh, we want to be open-handed. We, we, want, we want to get feedback so that we can grow in, in glorifying God by making disciples. That is really important. And, and I'll tell you, as, as a leader in a church, sometimes with that lens, I miss the grace of God. I miss what God is doing, right? I'll, I'll be dialed in on, on a certain aspect of ministry or, or maybe something to do with, with our Sunday gathering, and I, and I just miss God's goodness right in front of me. So I'm sure that Barnabas saw growth areas, but I'm also conf and, and I'm confident also that, that he, he addressed those in time. But, but what Luke tells us, and it looks like it's the reflex of Barnabas, is to see the grace of God. And I just wonder, how are we at that as a church? How are you at that individually? Are we quick to recognize the grace of God, to point that out, to celebrate it? Uh, just a few months ago, someone uh, gently confronted me with a way that, that I just missed celebrating uh, the grace of God in, in someone's life. I was just, I was zoned in on, on, on this, one, this one little micro thing and and I missed it. I mean, really, it was, it was, uh, it was, it was a fear. And, and because of that, I just didn't even see the grace of God at work. And, and I praise God for that conversation. I really, uh, looking back on it, I think it was one of the most important conversations, one of the most important uh, times of learning for me as, as a young pastor. Man, we do not want to miss the grace of God. Yeah, we want to grow, right? We want to improve. We want to get better at being the body of Christ. We want to get better at, at, at making disciples, and we do not want to miss what God is doing and praise him for that. Well, Barnabas didn't miss what God had been doing. He saw the response to God's gracious revealing of himself to these Gentiles, and he was glad, and he set out to encourage them in their growth, right? He urged them, or, or uh, our Bible says, exhorted them to be faithful in Christ, to not waver, to be steadfast in purpose. Man, the church, uh, every church needs uh, a bunch of people that are like Barnabas, right? Christians that are, are so eager to see people remain in Christ, to grow in Christ. 
Every church needs those who will seek out other believers within that body to help them grow in Jesus. Weeks back, we talked about discipleship for, uh, for I think, three weeks. And Barnabas is great at making disciples. Like, if you want to grow as a disciple maker, just look for all the places in Scripture where, where, where we get to see Barnabas and learn from him. He's great at coming alongside a newer believer, helping them in their faith. And I know that we have people in our body that that's your heart. You're, you're looking out all the time for how can I encourage others in Christ. But, but I ask all of us, are we, are we making disciples like Jesus has told us to? Are we on the lookout to encourage newer Christians in their faith or, or Christians that just haven't walked with Jesus as long as you have? Are we, are we like the scattered believers that are just talking about God everywhere we go? These believers, man, they were faithful. They were faithful to witness about Jesus and they were faithful to welcome in new people, right? Which can be tough in a church, like you've got your relationships and, and yet you see new people and, and, and you want to talk to them and make sure they're included, but you also don't want to lose what you already have. And man, they were great. They were great at, at bringing in new people. And, I, and I'm sure that that meant at times that their little equivalent to small groups like had to, had to multiply so they could invite more people in. But they, they were faithful at, at, at bringing new people in. Well, Luke describes Barnabas in verse 24 uh, similarly to how he described Stephen back in chapter 7. My guess is some of you remembered that, that Stephen was also described as a man full of the Holy Spirit. And, and we talked about the Spirit for uh, a few weeks. I won't get a ton into this now, but we remember the Holy Spirit is the one who gives us what we need to love and follow Jesus. Right? He gives us what we need to grow in Jesus he gives us what we need to, to speak about Jesus, to have the courage and the words to testify about Christ. I think it's also interesting that Barnabas is described here by Luke as good. I couldn't find another time in, in, in uh, Acts where someone's described as good. I'm not saying the other believers were bad, but Barnabas is a good guy. Luke, Luke is holding him up here. He's shining a light on him. And you might remember his name means son of encouragement, right? That's that's a great way to be described. And we'll see this more and more with Barnabas, but he's a guy who takes risks with other Christians, or I should say on other Christians, maybe that, that some others would give up on, but not Barnabas. Now, he's great at encouraging these younger believers. He was great at trusting God's grace in someone's life and walking beside them to help them grow. So Luke tells us that, that a great many people were added to the Lord. So the disciple-making in Antioch, it is, it's disciples who make disciples. I mean, it is multiplying, and more and more people are coming to faith and are being welcomed into this young church. But you note that, that Barnabas encouraged them to remain faithful, to remain steadfast in purpose. Barnabas understood that following Jesus wasn't, wasn't only this one-time decision, but it's a lifelong commitment to Jesus as Lord of our lives, right? Daily deciding, I'm trusting in you, Jesus. So part of this encouraging these new believers was that they would remain faithful, they'd be steadfast. Following Christ takes uh, diligence. You could compare it to uh, marriage, 
when you're first married, maybe if you're married, maybe you remember what this is like. Marriage, for a lot of us at least, doesn't take a whole ton of work at the beginning, right? We call that the honeymoon period. It's not just the honeymoon. It extends hopefully several months. Maybe for, for some it doesn't go that long. But uh, it, it's, it's pretty easy, right? You're, uh, uh, I don't know why this word came to mind, Twitterpated from Bambi. You're, you're, <laughs> you're, just, you're in love. And, and, and then eventually you're still in love, but marriage takes work, right? And, and, and it makes sense because you've got one selfish person and another selfish person. And they're now trying to come together as one. Like, what could go wrong? So I'll, I'll just leave it there. But similarly, following Jesus might be pretty easy when you first come to know him. And, and, and in this case, obviously, it's not two selfish people. It's, it's just one selfish person that makes the problem here. Jesus has given himself to us. But man, there's a battle. Scripture tells us there's a, there's a spiritual battle. Paul in Ephesians says we, we need to put on the armor of God. Right? This is serious business. And when you're in a battle, you don't, you don't just put on the armor sometimes. No, you keep that armor on. And Barnabas was preparing this young church. Right? He's helping them to, to remain faithful, to remain steadfast in purpose. And he's telling them, don't don't put your walk with Jesus on cruise control. So Barnabas is glad about these new believers, and he also sees that he needs help. If he's going to encourage these believers, he needs help. So um, this is something that we see throughout the New Testament, this pattern of, uh, of ministry together, right? Supporting one another as, as, as we make disciples. Ministry is not a solo endeavor. Ministry takes teamwork. So if you're looking around your workplace, right, or students, if, if you're looking around your, your school or, or your neighborhood and you want to be a light, the first thing I would tell you to do is start praying that God would give you another believer to partner with, right, in, in the workplace or in school or, or on your street. And, and it's not so that you can uh, just be this holy huddle, like hiding from the darkness. No, it's, it's so that you can be light, so that you can partner together to be a gospel witness. Verse 25, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. There's a little Bible trivia for you. But there are enough of them to get noticed. And they were getting a reputation. And those around them rightly connected their lives to Jesus and called them Christians. And this is, man, that's what I want. My guess is that's what you want. We want people to just easily be able to see and hear uh, as they look at our lives, they hear our words that, that we're about Jesus, that, that we love Jesus I wonder if the, if the term Christian, if that label didn't even exist, what would people call us today? Or if people were, uh, if, if people like in Camas, Washougal heard about Harvest or, or, or someone in your neighborhood uh, knew you or at school or at work, if they were to, to label you, if they were to come up with a term for you, how would they describe you? Now this, this label, this term Christian was probably not a compliment um, it was probably an, an insult to, uh, an attempted insult to the early church, which feels similar today. Right? Maybe there are times when you don't want to describe yourself as a Christian, not because of Jesus, but, but because of, of 
other people, right, in, in our world that call themselves Christians. And certainly there are many cultural Christians. There are many people that, that, that say I'm a Christian, but, but they're not genuine followers of Christ. It's really just in name only. Or, or maybe like me, you get embarrassed uh, by stories of people that, that say they're Christians, but, but do, I mean, just blatantly live lives that have nothing to do with the Lord. And, and it gets in the news, they get caught. And, and, and I'm embarrassed by these news stories. Right? They, they've at times made me want, want to find a different way to label myself still, totally connected with Jesus, but, but not connected with those people. But years ago, I was convicted that, that I was embarrassed for myself. Like my embarrassment actually had nothing to do with Jesus. In those moments, I realized that I was concerned with how someone else thought about me, my, my neighbor or friend or coworker or whatever, because, uh, uh, about me because I'm a Christian, and, and not nearly as much about what they thought of Jesus. And we want people, when they cross paths with us, to see Jesus. Right? We want them to see something that looks like his grace. We want them to see traces of, uh, of, of his love. We want them to see something that reflects his compassion. I want people to, to see glimpses, at least, uh, of Jesus in me. Well, what very well may have been meant as an insult to the earlier believers could not have been a better testimony to the early church. Right, to, to be named as Christians by outsiders. We, we should take that name, that, that label, seriously, not for our sake, but for the reputation of Jesus. Alexander the Great had a soldier who was uh, named Alexander. He was named after his commander. Uh, but the problem was, this soldier was a coward. And uh, Alexander the Great certainly was not a coward. He had conquered the world uh, by the age of 23. So he called this soldier in, and he asked him two questions. He, and, and the soldier comes in just trembling, so nervous. And Alexander the Great asked him if he was named Alexander and, and if he was named after him. And the soldier answered yes to both. And Alexander the Great told him he either needed to stop being a coward or he needed to change his name. And I wonder, I wonder if if sometimes you, you feel like Jesus is going to have that conversation with you. Does he call us to live like him? Yes. Right, but, but here's a major difference. We talked about this as we talked about the Holy Spirit, and he gives us his spirit to help us live for him, to help us live like him. Right, so we're, we're not like the soldier on our own trying to figure out, man, how do I stop being a coward? Or, 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 how, or how do I go about changing my name? No, instead we come to God in humility, we ask him to grow us. We ask him to change us. We ask him to, to give us courage. We ask him to make us more and more into the image of Christ, and he is faithful to do that. And part of this that we see in the early church, really throughout Acts, is, is they're submitting themselves to godly teaching. In verse 26, Barnabas and Saul, what they do, they taught for a year. Right, they're in the Bible with these believers, and I'm sure there were unbelievers with them as well at times. And they're, they're reading, they're wrestling in Scripture. Right? They're asking questions. And, and they're, not just trying to, they're not just trying to fill their heads, right? but, but they're, they're trying to know God, to live unto Jesus. And we need to be committed 
We need to be committed to getting in God's word together. And, and we have some ways that, that uh, are, are starting here in the fall, like the women's ministry. We've talked about a lot, but I'm going to talk about one more time. We've got uh, a few different studies going on. Sherry's leading a study in Matthew. I don't know if there's still room in that study. I couldn't hear that. Waiting list. Okay, so if you want to be on the waiting list, talk to Sherry. Uh, we have two others, and we've got information in the back. There's a study on Hosea that Ginger's leading. There's some room there. And there's another one called uh, Respectable Sins, this book study. And, and I, I wonder if that title makes you go like, what in the world is that? So I want to explain it for a second. Um, there, there are sins that, uh, that we just seem to tolerate as believers, right? Like, like we know the big sins. We stay away from those. But then we we just kind of make it okay to have these other sins hang around in our lives, uh, right? Uh, whether it's, I don't know, anger or, or, or pride. And, and we just kind of tuck those behind us and, and, and keep them with us. This study is, is, about, is about confronting those sins. Um, so if you want to be a part of one of those women's studies, uh, you can sign up for those. You can get on Sherry's waiting list. Um, uh, we also have a men's Bible study Tuesday night. Um, I know there are others that are leading Bible studies. Scott's got a Bible study Friday mornings, 6 o'clock at, at Dev's Coffee Shop. <laughs> They're hardcore. Um, <laughs> I missed whatever you just said. I only heard guns. Anyway, um, uh, but man, if you can't make one of these Bible studies, if you're like 5.45 in the morning, <laughs> if I'm drinking coffee at that time, something's really wrong. If that's you, man, get in the Word with someone else, right? Like we can get you some resources. Get, get in God's Word. If, if one of these studies doesn't work out for you, let's find another way to get you in the Word. Verse 27. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, uh, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And, and then Luke, there in the parentheses, tells us this happened, right? This took place in the days of Claudius. Verse 29, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to their brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So our passage today ends with just this window into uh, the generosity of the early church, the giving of the early church. So there, there's this prophecy. Luke says, yes, this actually did happen. There's going to be this famine. Uh, so the church here decided to collect money to help out brothers and sisters in Christ in Judea. Right? This, wasn't, this wasn't a government program saying, hey, you need to, you need to give this much. We're going to tax you, and it's going to go help. This wasn't the church saying, hey, you need to do this amount, and we're going to go help. It says the disciples, right, each Christian on their own thought through. They, they, they prayed through, certainly. They, they wrestled through, okay, well, what do I give? Lord, of what you've given me, what do I give? And then they sent it off with Barnabas and Saul, who gave it to the elders of that church, and then they distributed to to the people uh, in in their church, right? So our, our giving to local church should be that way. I don't know if some people are maybe out of town and, and you have another church back home, but you, you, this is how our, our giving should be, right? There's no formula that, that you give X percent. Uh, we, we often call it tithe, and, and we get that from the Old Testament. Um, but, but in the New Testament, we don't have this, this exact give this way. But what we do see is people uh, determining according to their own ability and, and with, with joy and, and, and wanting to be generous. There's this wrestling with God, like, how much do I give? And, and that's, I was just talking to someone the other day, uh, that's a tricky thing with automated giving. 
Because it's in, in one sense, it's really great to, to be able to just make a decision like, okay, I'm just giving this right off the top, and, 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 and it's automatic, and, 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 and you don't even think about it because you just consider it like this is going to the Lord's work. That is awesome in, in one sense. But in another sense, it disconnects us from, from it being worship too. So I don't fully know how to help anyone with that except to say regularly, maybe it's once a year, twice a year, maybe it's more than that. Like you, you should, if you're a household, if you're an individual, like you should before the Lord go, okay, how do you want me to give? Like how much do you want me to give? And, and, and make sure that our heart is still connected to, to our, our giving. Um, uh, I, I want to circle back to verse 21, and we'll end right here. I, I blazed through this on purpose, but I want to end it here. It says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. This is why people were coming to know Jesus. It, it, it's because God was at work. It, yes, the believers spoke about Jesus. That was necessary, right? But, but it, was, it was God at work in those Christians that were dispersed speaking about Jesus. It was God at work in Barnabas and in Saul to encourage the church, the church at Antioch. We, we cannot fool ourselves into thinking that we have the right strategies, right? That, that we can come up with the right outreach program, the right training, and, and that we can pull off ministry on our own. All those things are excellent tools. All of those are, are good, but only when God is the one working in and through his church. Right? We need God to move, and that's what we're praying for. Would you join me now in prayer? God, we, we thank you. We thank you for your word. It is, uh, I'm just really excited to be back in Acts. And I, I do pray, I do ask that, that you would teach us through your word each and every week, not just on Sundays together, but God, I, I pray that you'd grow us as a body, that, that we would just be people of your word, Lord. And I pray that you'd, you'd bless these different studies that are happening. I pray that new ones that, that we haven't planned would, would, would come about as well. And that, that as we're gathering together, as we're, as we're talking about your word, as we're reading your word together, studying word together, you would grow us. God, for those uh, in the room or online that you know, have, have been Christians for years and years, but maybe, maybe today realized I'm not blown away by the grace of God anymore. I, I, don't, I don't just speak about Jesus all the time like I used to. God, would you, would you remind us uh, of your great love for us, Lord. W would you remind us of how uh, truly amazing it is, how miraculous it, it was that we came to know you, that we came to be forgiven of sin. God, would that, would that just blow us away all the time, Lord? And, and when it doesn't, God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you're, you're so good to remind us to humble us, to show us how great you are and how great your love is, Lord. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.